This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Tired of not getting a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hello, hello. I'm Brittany Luce, and you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, a show about what's going on in culture and why it doesn't happen by accident. As the presidential race gets rolling, both the Democrats and Republicans are looking to a higher power for support. On one end, we see the Democrats making those predictable and, in my opinion, enterprising rounds to Black churches. More on that later. But then there's the Republicans, and that's where I want to start. This week, former President Trump won the Iowa Republican Caucus in a history-making landslide, thanks in part to the white evangelical vote. Now, evangelicals have been an engine for the Republican Party for decades. And today, white Americans who align with Trump are more likely to identify as evangelical. And yet, at the same time, church attendance has gone down. So I want to explore this maybe blasphemous question. Are evangelicals a religious group or a political one? I'm joined today by NPR political correspondent Sarah McCammon. She's reported on the cultural and political power of evangelical Christians in America. And she joined me from the campaign trail in the freezing depths of New Hampshire. Sarah, welcome to It's Been a Minute. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Oh my gosh, my pleasure, my pleasure. Heading into the Iowa caucus, there was a lot of talk about evangelicals as a powerful group. When we say evangelicals are a powerful group in the electoral sense, who are we talking about and why are they so powerful? When we talk about the political movement, we're really talking about primarily white conservative Protestant Christians, and they make up a huge portion of the Republican base. Today, I'm also proud to announce that our campaign has been endorsed by pastors and faith leaders in every single one of the 99 counties. That's almost, I think, a first. Thank you very much. God is with us. I think so, right? It's so interesting because it seems that, like, in my experience, most Americans expect their president to have some sort of religious affiliation. And maybe I'm wrong here, but Trump only vaguely seems to have a religious affiliation where in the past he said that he was Presbyterian and then during his presidency he announced at one point in 2020 that he had changed to being non-denominational. But also in 2020, there were polls where most people who were asked said that they didn't think of Trump as religious. And I have to say that my opinion, personally, is that that's not the first thing that I think of when I think of Donald Trump. <laughs> it's not? <laughs> Funnily enough, it's not. And yet, Trump talks a lot about defending Christians on the whole from this feeling of being under attack and whatnot. How do evangelicals square all of this? Well, you know, I don't think Trump has, very often at least, tried to brand himself as a deeply religious person. Yes, he talks about religious freedom, and he talks about defending the church, and he talks about the evangelicals, as he puts them. But when he's asked about his own faith, 
he's pretty famously stumbled several times, and, and he doesn't seem to be overly concerned about trying to make people think he's some kind of deep, devout Christian. You know, he famously, when he was in Iowa in 2016, talking to a conservative evangelical group, and he was asked about whether he'd ever asked God for forgiveness, he said, I'm not sure I have. I just go and try and do a better job from there. I don't think so. I think I, if, I, if I do something wrong, I think I just try and make it right. Yeah, that's not a very churchy answer. Not at all. <laughs> but Trump, he doesn't seem to worry too much about that. And you know what? His supporters don't seem to care that much. And I, I've heard hmm. two different responses to, to questions about this. And I want to talk to you about two people I talked to while I was in Iowa. The first is State Representative Luana Stoltenberg. She's an evangelical Trump supporter. She told me she'd initially caucused for former Pennsylvania Senator Rick Santorum back in 2016. And she did have some initial concerns about Trump, but she told me she, mm-hmm. she came around pretty quickly. At first, I just didn't know what to think because I didn't know him that well. I just knew him as, you know, the developer and kind of the playboy kind of a guy. That's who I knew. And so I wasn't sure. I did have friends that were supporting him and that really prayed through it and felt like he was supposed to be the president. And I saw the changes in him. I don't believe he is that same man that he was years ago. So Stoltenberg thinks that Trump has changed, not necessarily that he's deeply spiritual, but that he's... But he's changed as a person to be more... More palatable. You know, that he's not that yes. playboy guy. She said, you know, he's, he's still married to Melania. Hmm. Now, others just truly, it doesn't matter. They like his policies. They like his leadership style. They don't care if he's an evangelical. Hmm. I met Shelley Burrow at a pro-Trump event in Ankeny, which is outside of Des Moines, when I was there in the past few days. When I asked her about Trump's character, here's how she responded. Have you read the Bible? Have you read the Bible? Yeah, Because many of the people in the Bible were married multiple times, and they didn't always do the perfect thing. People aren't perfect. Hmm. That's so interesting. Yeah, she says she's been a Trump supporter from the beginning, and she thinks he commands respect, and he's the kind of person she wants in the White House. Reading about evangelicals like ahead of the caucuses in Iowa, I found something really interesting. It, it seemed like one of the core beliefs is not a religious one, but a political one. That what is most important in being evangelical, some people feel, is to vote Republican. It used to be to my understanding, that evangelicals supported Republicans because of issues like abortion or same-sex marriage. But now it seems to be about being Republican, just that identity. It seems like there's a really profound conflation, yes. And I think, you know, what's the chicken and what's the egg here? I'm not 100% sure. And I think evangelicals are still, I, I know they're still motivated by those issues. They bring them up when I talk to them. But they're also motivated by issues like immigration and the border. And so it's not just one thing. And when you were talking about that data, it, it reminded me of another PRI survey within the last couple of years that indicated that people who identify as evangelical or articulate evangelical beliefs are proportionally more likely to say, for example, that being Christian is part of being American and that America should be a Christian nation. Hmm. And so while not all evangelicals are Christian nationalists, that is a rising ideology within conservative Christianity. And there's an increasing alignment there with the Republican Party. Sarah, you grew up in the evangelical church. I'm curious, from your experience, what is it about Trump that white evangelicals specifically are drawn to now? Well, from my experience and also from my reporting, I can say that it's a number of things. I mean, 
It's largely the policies that he both promised to enact as a candidate in 2016 and since then has delivered on for the white evangelical base. Trump promised to select conservative Supreme Court justices who would overturn Roe v. Wade. You know, I talked to Samuel Perry, a sociology professor at the University of Oklahoma who studies a lot of this. He thinks that evangelical voters prefer Trump at least as much now as they did four or eight years ago. Evangelicals see themselves as victims in a culture war, that they are persecuted and embattled, and that sense is probably even stronger. Hmm. hmm. And and there is a, a good amount of rhetoric from Trump around identifying and naming that sense of being under attack. And also a lot of rhetoric from him about wanting to be a person that will protect the church or protect Christians. As soon as I get back in the Oval Office, I'll also immediately end the war on Christians. I don't know if you feel it. You have a war. There's a war. Under crooked Joe Biden, Christians and Americans of faith are being persecuted and government has been weaponized against religion like never before. And Perry says that evangelicals see Trump as having a proven track record of fighting for their causes. I think evangelicals bought into the promise of Trump in 2016 and again in 2020, and now they'll continue to do so because they feel he is somebody who is uninhibited by any kind of moral compass because he's not going to apologize. He's not going to back down because he doesn't know how to do that. The other interesting thing that Perry says about this is that during the Trump years, evangelical has become an increasingly political label rather than a theological one. And that's happening at the same time that like we've seen declines in church attendance across the board. Some scholars have dubbed it the great de-churching. One thing that we know is like many people have turned to podcasts or live streams or online commentary that blends religious beliefs with political punditry. And that is its own sort of like media quagmire that I think we're all working through right now. But to you, as someone who follows evangelicals so closely in your reporting, how has the relationship between religion and politics for these kinds of Christians evolved since the rise of Trump? The increasing kind of isolation we saw during the pandemic, the increasing polarization of our media and therefore of our electorate Mm -hmm. has, I think, created all these different sort of niche lanes where people can find each other and pretty much reinforce whatever they want to believe. I'm in my early 40s. When I was, you know, a teenager up into my early 20s, it was almost a quarter of the country was a white evangelical, more if you include evangelicals of color. Whoa, I did not know that. that almost is one in four. A huge number. Yeah. Wow. And, and that number's down, according to Public Religion Research Institute, that number's down to maybe more like 14% today, in part because of demographic change. But I think the the unifying thing seems to be this sense that the country is headed in the wrong direction. Things have changed in a way that's not good. And that's obviously much easier to say if you're a white evangelical than a non-white American. And so I think, you know, for whatever reason, conservative Christians have united around a few ideas in a way that I'm not sure that progressives and Democrats have been able to do. Hmm. Robert Jones of the Public Religion Research Institute, who's also a writer who's written several books about this, argues really powerfully the shrinking hold of white Christianity on the country and the changing culture is a motivating factor to organize around these ideals. Hmm. Hmm. You've been talking about 
evangelicals as like a religious identity and also as a political identity. Sarah, do you think evangelical at this point in culture is more a religious identity or more of a political one? We've talked about the fact that there's survey data that suggests that for some white Americans who identify with Trump, they're more likely to call themselves evangelical than they used to be. Sam Perry also says there's survey data suggesting that people stop going to church if they don't feel they align politically with the people in the pews next to them. Hmm. So some of those people might become, quote unquote, nuns. They stop being religious. Or they might try mainline Protestant churches. They might try something else. But here's what he said about that. Well, I think what we're seeing is that, like, the conservative Trump-supporting faction of evangelicalism has laid claim successfully to the evangelical kind of space in a way that if you don't fit in that and, and that you don't feel like all of that, that term represents now, then you back away from that. And that's, uh, you know, I, I think that's going to have tremendous consequences in the future. I think we can speculate about what those consequences will be. And I don't think we fully know yet. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Thinking about this increase in white Americans identifying as evangelical and their closeness to Trump, I'm curious, how do you think this shift will impact the rest of the upcoming primaries? Evangelicals were essential to Trump's win in Iowa. How essential are they for him to win in the general election? Uh, Really important. 80% of them, give or take, supported him in the last two elections. It's a big margin. They're really critical. And, you know, there are some efforts underway to find persuadable evangelicals as well as uh, conservative Catholics who, who might not be crazy about Donald Trump and get them to think about supporting Biden. I talked to Doug Paget. He's executive director of a group called Vote Common Good, which described its mission as working to help Christian conservatives separate their faith from Trumpism and from Republican politics. He was in Iowa for the caucuses, and he says he's going to be going on the road this year to try to have some of those conversations. We're going to specifically work in Arizona, Georgia, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And we'll be involved in many other states because moving 3% of evangelicals away from voting for Donald Trump on election day makes it, by our estimates, impossible for him to win in those states. And I should say this group, Vote Common Good, started doing what they were doing a few years ago in response to the rise of Trump. And they believed that they were instrumental or at least in, influential in, in helping move enough evangelical voters in some of these key states in 2020 in a way that they think helped President Biden get elected. Huh. (laughs) Well, we'll see how all that turns out. But that's very, very interesting that even with the sort of like political identification, that there still is apparently some room for people to be swayed or convinced to vote in another direction. The other thing Doug said is that this has been a really heartbreaking time for theological conservatives who don't support Donald Trump. The word that Doug used is sad. He said the conservative Christians he talks to who feel this way are just sad because they feel politically homeless in this environment. Hmm. Politically homeless. Very strong language, but it also speaks to just how strong this conflation is between evangelicals and Trump supporters. Very, very interesting. You know, Sarah, to close out, we're in the era dubbed the Great Dechurching. In 2021, for the very first time, less than 50% of Americans were members of a church. Do you think the quote-unquote church, however we define it, is more or less powerful than it has been? 
At this moment, I think more powerful, despite the, you know, overall downward trajectory of white evangelicalism. Hmm. Sarah, thank you so, so much for coming on and talking with me about this. You have blown my mind. My pleasure. It's so good to talk to you. Thank you. That was Sarah McCammon, political correspondent at NPR. She's also the author of the upcoming book, The Exvangelicals, where she details her experience growing up in and eventually leaving the evangelical church. The Exvangelicals will be out in March. Coming up, we turn to another religious institution that's had a long history of using its power to change the course of politics and social issues, the Black church. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. A real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit teladochealth.com slash what's your why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C health slash what's your why. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at BetterHelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. A warning, this episode includes explicit language. Now I want to turn to a different religious power, the Black Church. And it is with great pride that I present to you the man totally committed to making every American a part of the American dream, Joe Biden. Earlier this month, President Joe Biden kicked off his re-election campaign in Charleston, South Carolina, at Mother Emanuel AME Church. It's a historic Black church and the site of the 2015 Charleston church shooting, which killed nine churchgoers. It's a hallowed space in the community. Thank you. I rest my case. As President Biden remarked on threats to democracy, he was interrupted by protesters calling for a ceasefire in Palestine. The protesters were escorted out and eventually drowned out by chants from the crowd of four more years. Biden got jacked up. And people didn't like it. That's Dr. Anthea Butler, Geraldine R. Siegel Professor of American Social Thought and Chair of Religious Studies at University of Pennsylvania. She's a historian who specializes in American and African-American religion and served as a co-chair of Catholics for Biden in 2020. She says she will not do so again. 
as usual, white politicians like to show up at historic black churches so that they can pretend that they are very down with the people. And he was surprised to be confronted about the Palestinian conflict. But how surprising is it? Today on the show, the roots of protest in the black church and its messy history with the Democratic Party. Dr. Butler, welcome to It's Been a Minute. Thank you, Brittany. Nice to be here. It's great to have you. This moment that we just saw at AME, it had a lot of people, even some journalists up in a tizzy, Mm -hmm. you know, saying that it wasn't the time or place to protest the president. Some people calling the moment disgraceful. You write that protest is foundational to what we think about as the Black church. Absolutely. Can you expand on that? I mean, it's foundational because you don't get a Black church without protest, right? It's not like white churches were amenable to having us there. And if they were, you were sitting in the back of the church. You were subject to white leadership. The AME church itself is founded out of Black people walking out of a white church right here in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, to start something else, right? So I think that this is foundational to what the Black church is and represents as not just a religious space, but the only space for a long time that Black people could meet, plan, strategize, that Mm -hmm. they could talk about the racism that was happening in this country. So I look askance at these people who are doing this and think, well, you obviously, A, have some respectability politics, but let me tell you that this guy named Jesus knocked over tables in the temple. And so if you don't know how to deal with the guy that you think you worship, Jesus, then you clearly don't understand what you're sitting in right now, which is a church. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about this moment that we saw happen with President Biden. This moment of anti-war protest in Mother Emanuel AME reminds me a bit of, of Martin Luther King Jr.'s stance against the Vietnam War, which wasn't received without pushback from other Black leaders, right? Like those from the NAACP. But I wonder, is there like a pattern here with anti-war protest in the Black churches or even just with those two situations? Do you see a pattern? There is a tradition of protest within the Black church. And so I don't understand why everybody was clutching their pearls so much when this is something that has always happened. And let me say one more thing. I think the thing that the fallacy about history, and especially the fallacy about Black church history, is that it's always been lockstep. That is, everybody had to agree. Well, everybody doesn't Mm. agree, and they've never agreed. So I think one of the things that we have to do is to, A, learn some history, which is, unfortunately, people don't want to learn any history. Hmm. So- Talk to me about the Black church. Who or what are we talking about right now when we use that phrase, the Black church? Well, there's a lot of discussion about what the phrase the Black church means. And, and, and actually, it's a catch-all, hold-all phrase. Right. I want to think back to Professor Eddie Glaude from Princeton, who asked a very poignant question a few years back, is the Black church dead? Yes. People were all angry at him and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, he probably kind of was right in a way. I think the way that we define church, and especially Black church, is the institution in America that people have looked towards and African Americans have belonged to as Christians. Not everybody belongs to a Black church, okay? Not everybody cares about the Black church. I need to say that out loud. 
you know, the African Methodist Episcopal Church was founded. There were Black churches before that. They just were standalone. They were not denominations. When you start mm-hmm. to form denominations, that's a whole different ballgame. And you get constructs like, you know, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, Church of God in Christ, other mm-hmm. Black denominational churches. And so those on a spectrum have been at times involved in the civil rights movement, whether to a greater extent or to a lesser extent. I think when we're talking about the 21st century and what does that word black church means, it Mm -hmm. it means something that is A, a historical construct, B, a nice placeholder to talk about Christianity and African-Americans, and C, an institution that is not what it used to be, but still exists as both an imagination, a memory, and also a dynamic political strategy for African-Americans in this community. These days, it is basically gospel, church joke intended, that the Democrats are supported by Black churches, by the Black church, you know, like you said, this real Mm -hmm. or imagined Mm -hmm. space or group. But it's much more complicated than that. What, What were turning points that cemented that relationship between the Black church and the Democratic Party specifically? So we need to talk about this from the 1960s forward, because I think if you try to talk about it prior to that, I'm not going to say to you that the Democratic Party had the Black church. They didn't. Right. Back then, some of them were Dixiecrats who supported Jim Crow, segregation, so on. And so when you understand that they were Dixiecrats and they were basically like, you know, some of them were KKK folks, this makes a big difference. (laughs) So what we're talking about is, you know, a, a relationship that existed probably alongside of, I would say, JFK in the beginning, LBJ, and then forward. Okay, so that's Mm -hmm. the relationship that we're talking about. And Mm -hmm. people may disagree with me on that, and that's fine. The second thing I think we're talking about is a relationship between people who came out of the church and became political activists, right? Mm -hmm. So we can think about people like Jesse Jackson and others who had a church relationship who were reverends and then became public figures, worked in politics, Al Sharpton and others. Yeah, like people like that, right? And and they're not the only ones, okay? And you might think about that today as Senator Raphael Warnock, who is also a pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, right? Mm. So you could think about it that way, that you have church people who have been involved in politics, but you also have church people who facilitate politics. So let me give you an example of that. Yes, I wrote about the Church of God in Christ in my book, Women in the Church of God in Christ. Mm -hmm. You started to see political figures come to the annual convocation of the Church of God in Christ. So back in the 90s, Bill Clinton went, you know, so this is a whole history of people sliding in and out of these, you know, sort of black church events, whether that's the, you know, AME, Convocations, Baptists, whoever, you always Mm -hmm. have some political figures that show up. Coming up, what the great de-churching may mean for Biden's re-election campaign. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how a new study aims to impact an underrepresented community. My greatest hope for the Voices of Black Women study is that it will help us understand and identify culturally tailored ways to change and really eliminate the unacceptable disparities for future generations of Black women as it relates to cancer. To learn more, go to voices.cancer.org. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore. 
Jump into a new perspective on performance apparel. Viore makes products that stand the test of time and hope to inspire others to live vibrant, healthy lives. Empowering your best life in clothing that can be worn for just about any activity from running to yoga. Visit viore.com slash NPR to receive 20% off your first purchase and enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75. Discover the versatility of Viore clothing. This message comes from NPR sponsor ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. Enter ServiceNow. It puts AI to work for people across your business, providing intelligent tools to help remove frustration and supercharge productivity. And all of that is built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Learn more at servicenow.com AI for people. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. You wrote a chapter on the Black church for the 1619 Project, and Mm -hmm. you start that chapter off quoting, quoting that three-word sentence by Mm -hmm. Jeremiah Wright. Yep. Goddamn America! That caused a firestorm. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. I remember that at the time. This was 2008. Obama is on his first presidential bid. And that quote from Reverend Jeremiah Wright was making the rounds on every news platform mm-hmm. imaginable with critics decrying Wright as unpatriotic. Mm-hmm. And Obama was campaigning for the presidency at the time. He released a statement rejecting Wright's sermon yeah. and then doubled down mm-hmm. later on in mm-hmm. a speech in Philadelphia. Yeah, the race speech. As such, Reverend Wright's comments were not only wrong, but divisive. Divisive at a time when we need unity. Yeah, he doubled down on his condemnation of Wright's words in that speech. And that speech was a huge success, which some people, including you, as you said, saw as a betrayal. Talk to me about why you see that moment specifically as a betrayal. like, And, and in what ways was that a turning point in the relationship between the Black church and the Democratic Party? Before all of this happened, let us not forget, uh, you know, the historian is going to bring you back. Obama mm-hmm. had already shut Jeremiah Wright down the day he announced his run for presidency because mm. Jeremiah Wright was supposed to pray at the Illinois State House and mm-hmm. he told him he couldn't. So let's go back because it's not just there. He had started that off long before. So that's mm. number one. All right. Number two, he knew what he was doing. Because he basically didn't want to have to deal with anything prophetic. The prophetic means that you call out the injustices of the nation. What Jeremiah Wright did was a Jeremiah, which was a lament. God damn America that's in the Bible for killing innocent people. God damn America for treating our citizens as less than human. God damn America. This is the kind of sermon that you would hear a lot from different kinds of preachers, not just Jeremiah Wright. Okay. No, I mean there there are many churches, black churches in America, where that would be a commonplace sermon. What Obama did was to turn that on its head and say, "No, this is terrible." He placated white listeners. Hmm. 
Okay. And in the guise of placating white listeners, he also put his foot on the neck of the black church because what he was basically saying was that you're not supposed to do this anymore. If I'm going to be the first black president, which he ended up being, yeah. then we don't, you, you don't need to do this anymore. And so what we have to ask ourselves is, mm-hmm. did the first black president really use the black church just like a white man? Hmm. I mean, I think that's a great question to ask, but I wonder in what ways do politicians depend on the black church even outside of campaigning and getting out the vote? Uh, they lean on the black church to keep the peace. Say more about that. <laughs> Again, I'm going to hurt people's feelings. I mean, think about Black Lives Matter. I mean, this is one of those spaces in which, you know, the Black church was sort of used as a way to not just, you know, showcase the funerals and all of that, but to also be the peace bringer. As another night of uncertainty fell on Ferguson Monday, nearly 100 ministers marched in the hope of leading a path to peace. No matter what occurs, it doesn't give anybody any license to take lives or to injure humankind. It's also used as a way to say, this is part of America's heritage. You have all these Black people who are Christians, right? And and they're not going to do anything bad. They're not going to, you know, riot. They're going to keep the peace. Mm. You, you see what I'm getting at here? This is, this is a moment in which the Black church gets abused by the political, you know, things to either A, get the votes out, B, a good a photo op, C, keep the peace, D, you know, do the kinds of civic engagement that they expect, because they also expect the Black church to espouse these values of capitalism. Hmm. Say more about that. They expect them to do the values of capitalism by saying, you know, work hard, get your kids educated, off the streets. You know, we got all these prosperity gospel churches. Oh, I was going to say kind of like like a new twist on the prosperity gospel or Puritan work ethic. Yeah, yeah. Be a part of what America is. Right. And so if you're a part of what America is, then you're going to be hardworking. You're going to be thrifty. You're going to go get an education. You're going to be quiet. You're not going to kick against the goes, to use a scriptural term, to, to think about it in the ways in which you're going to challenge the status quo. We, we want you there to hear that preacher every Sunday to dress up nice, to do these things. Now, problem is, is that the black church is not operating that way anymore. And part of it is about the crumbling of churches to begin with, with people not going as much. The great de-churching of America, yes. Second, larger churches, they don't, they're not doing all of this anymore. These larger Black churches, you know, let's take a T.D. Jakes, for example. They're about the entertainment complex. They're not about the, the political context. <laughs> That's true. This is, you know, let's bring Tyler Perry in to give us a million dollars. And I leaned up toward him and I said, I've just been touched to give a million dollars. So as. It's not operating as this sort of like community organizing meeting place. No, no. They may have outreach to give food, to give clothes, you know, to do things like that. But that's in the hope that you're going to come to that church and bring your tithes and offerings. Hmm. Something that I wonder, though, you know, is going back to the moment where former President Obama was singing Amazing Grace at the funeral of Reverend Clementa Pinckney at Mother Emanuel Church back in 2015. It was a really charged moment because the church had just been the site of a racially motivated terrorist attack that killed nine churchgoers. Fire. 
something that I wonder though is going back to uh, the moment where former President Obama was singing Amazing Grace at the funeral of Reverend Clementa Pinckney at Mother Emanuel Church back in 2015. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were a lot of people that felt deeply and sincerely touched by that moment. Of course they did. Uh, Or people who might have, who felt seen. Mm -hmm. I wonder, what do you say to people who felt like that was a very sincere gesture or that was something that meant something to them? I'm glad it meant something to you, but it didn't mean the same thing to me. There's a lot of Negro spirituals he could have sang. Well, I sing the one written by a former slave master. Now, that was something I hadn't thought about. You just gave me something to think about with that one right there. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'm just saying. I, I mean, you know, ask the questions. This is this is a problem. If you, if you know how to ask the questions, then it starts to look really contrived, right? Hmm. When I think about what it seems to be happening, this current moment that there kind of could be with Joe Biden right now in this election is that, I don't know, it felt to me like he was coming into Mother Emanuel AME. Again, this is my opinion, but kind of on the coattails of Barack Obama's relationship with the Black church. Of course he was. Of course he was. Hmm. You know, we've all read the headlines. And as you brought up in this conversation, that church attendance is dwindling. And Mm -hmm. it's something even I've just seen in my own life. I think a lot of that has to do with obviously COVID-19, but that's a trend that I think many people were seeing before that even, you know, yes. the great dechurching, as we were saying. What does all that mean for Black churches and their congregants in, in, in this upcoming election? What does all that mean? Well, it means a couple of things. One is, if I'm the Democratic Party, it's too late to figure out what to do, because if you're relying on the same old networks that you had, and you haven't started building Mm. them, then you have a problem. Now, I don't know what they're doing, but I would suspect that their expectation is is that they're going to be able to go to the same people that they've gone to before. You know, that they're going to fall into lockstep, right? I'm not sure that that's going to be the case for everybody. I think that Black voters see, and Black churchgoers especially, see that they have not gotten everything that they've needed from the Democratic Party. Well, we will see what happens this year. We will see what happens. But I'll tell you what, we are already off to quite an interesting start. That's true. Dr. Butler, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Brittany. That's Dr. Anthea Butler, Geraldine R. Siegel Professor of American Social Thought and Chair of Religious Studies at University of Pennsylvania. You could read her chapter on the Black Church in full in the 1619 Project. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. This is Greg in New Orleans. I don't know if you saw it, but Usher was on the cover of Vogue this week, and the internet is absolutely buzzing about it. I need you to unpack this for me. What's going on there? Thanks. Hey, hey. Thank you so much for calling in with this question. I have been thinking about this a lot too myself. So for those of you who don't know, Usher is on the digital cover of Vogue magazine this month. And I'll say, it's a cute photo. 
It's Usher looking like some sort of suburban dad or like the coach of like a little league football team. He's got a kid hoisted up on his shoulder in a cute little orange football uniform. There's a, six other children in front of him. And they are all being flanked by the gorgeous model Carolyn Murphy, a white blonde woman who, if you don't know her by name, you definitely know her by face. The woman's a legend. She's been everywhere. It's a cute photo. There's definitely some football references in there because Usher is, of course, headlining the Super Bowl halftime show. But something about that cover photo is off to me. First of all, when you look at it, I mean, there's like eight other people on the cover of the magazine with Usher. When I looked at the photo, I kept wondering who I was supposed to be looking at. It almost felt like Vogue wasn't comfortable with having Usher as its cover star. At the end of the day, Vogue is a women's magazine. So it makes sense that they have to have somebody on the cover of the magazine wearing women's clothing. So I understand why Carolyn Murphy is there with Usher. What's interesting to me is their physical relationship to each other. Vogue doesn't tend to have black men on the cover of its magazine. In fact, the first time a black man appeared on the cover of Vogue, LeBron James in 2008. 2008. (laughs) That's pretty late in the game. And That picture in and of itself was its own media firestorm. I mean, you saw LeBron James on the cover of this magazine, dribbling a basketball, looking like the athletic god that he is, while holding model Giselle Bündchen around the waist in an image that looked like it was created from the King Kong movie poster from back in the 1930s. I mean, it had the internet in an uproar, and rightfully so. But back to the Usher photo. There is almost this hesitance I'm feeling to put Usher and Carolyn Murphy together on the cover of this magazine. It feels like there's almost an instinct to cover up Usher's body. Like I said, it's a good looking image. It's a nice photo. And of course, Usher's got this megawatt smile that's selling the whole thing. But I don't know. If you think that this man is good enough for a cover of your magazine, why don't you feel comfortable showing him his looks, his beauty, his style, his sexuality, the things that he's known for. And my other question is, why is he standing so far away from the cover model that he's in the photo with? When when you look at the rest of the editorial, they actually look like a couple. I don't know. I wish Usher much success. Carolyn Murphy, I imagine that she will stay beautiful as she always had. And those kids are cute as hell, I really have to say. But Something about this image is going to be unsettling me for the next few days. But I don't know. I want to hear from all of you. Let me know. What did you think of the Usher digital cover image? You can tweet at me at BMLoose because I want to talk about this. If you have a thought or question about pop culture, send us a voice memo at ibam at npr.org. That's I-B-A-M at npr.org. This episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by Barton Girdwood, Alexis Williams, Liam McBain, Corey Antonio Rose. This episode was edited by Jessica Placek, Bilal Qureshi. Engineering support came from Carly Strange, Gilly Moon. We had fact checking help from Susie Cummings, Sarah Knight. Our executive producer is Verilyn Williams. Our VP of programming is Yolanda Sanguini. All right, that's all for this episode of It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. Talk soon. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. 
From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.